sermon is about the cost of fear. There is a cost. Almost a decade ago, there was a survey that was taken. Approximately 3 million Americans live in fear, according to this survey. And there's another survey that was taken about that same time that says that over 3,000 people disclosed what their worst fears were. And before you start adding up these numbers, by the way, uh, some of them fit into more than one category. Because anybody that wants to follow along and count, it's something like 149%. And that because putting different categories and adding some together. There were 41% that were surveyed that said public speaking was their worst fear. 32% said they're afraid of, I'm not going to get up, heights. I used to be. I was delivered from that. 22% that they feared financial problems. Wow. It's only 22%. Interesting to me. 19% said they were afraid of death. I used to be. Before I met Yeshua. 18% said they were afraid of flying. I don't, I'm assuming that's in an airplane. Because I used to have dreams of flying and, and, and I didn't have an airplane. I was just flying. And four, 14% were afraid of being alone or abandoned. I saw this cartoon recently. Um, some of you may have seen it as well. It described fear... A fear that's unique to pastors and rabbis and other ministers. It's called the fear of transcontinental congraphobia. It's the fear that even if you're 2,000 miles away from home, there's a chance someone from your congregation may be in the next booth eavesdropping on your conversation. That one just tells me that you've got to always watch your mouth. The words that come out of your mouth can snare you. So what is your greatest fear in life when you think about it? Maybe you're afraid of being rejected. And many people are afraid of failure. They don't even try because they're so afraid they're going to fail that they won't even attempt to accomplish anything. Beth Moore, an author, wrote the book, So Long, so Long Insecurity, You've Been a Bad Friend to Us. And she confesses how she lived with insecurity since she was a young girl. And Beth is a woman who's not only a popular women's uh, Bible teacher, but also one of the most popular Bible teachers in the entire country. She's an attractive woman. She has a good family, she's, and she's very successful. Yet, beneath it all, she says that she's like a little girl, afraid of being rejected by people who love her and know her. It's one thing to have a fear of a rejection from people that just don't know you. But to be afraid of those that are closest to you, that's a strong motivator 
either negatively or positively as far as fear goes. But whatever your fear is, you know that it can be paralyzing. And it can keep you from experiencing everything God wants for you and wants you to do. It can rob you of your peace. If you're focused on your fear, you cannot have peace. Fear is the opposite of peace. It can keep you trapped in dry deserts. Where do I get dry deserts? Oh, Bamid Bar, in the wilderness, in the desert. Just like the Israelites were. And just like them, fear can keep us from entering our promised land that God has prepared for us. There's a land flowing with milk and honey that God has for each and every one of us. But fear can keep us from ever reaching it or entering into it and claiming it. In Numbers 13, again, next week's parasha, the Israelites are at the southern edge of the promised land. They're right there. They could have just entered in, but no. But just as a review of how they got there, we'll go back a little ways. It started back when Abraham was promised by God that he would give him the land from Dan to Beersheba. It was a land that was generally associated with what would become Israel. Back then it was called Canaan. Then Abraham's descendants became slaves in Egypt for 400 years. Where's that land that they were promised? It's still there. And then until God acted, they remained slaves. He heard their cries. He raised a deliverer named Moses. And he helped them escape the bondage of Pharaoh. He had Moses then lead them out of Egypt across the Red Sea, which God allowed to swallow up the pursuing Egyptian army. They found their way to Mount Sinai, where the people were given the ten words, the ten statements, the ten commandments, so that they could live their lives after God's design. And where? In their new land. They're not there yet. Despite all their complaining, their grumblings, God provided them with meat and bread every day. Then in Numbers chapter 12, the story has the Israelites in the north of the, in the north near the desert of Paran, which is known to us today as the Sinai Peninsula. That's where we find the physical connection of Africa and Asia. So the Israelites are on the southern border, the southern edge of that land that God has promised to them. They've witnessed God's hand defeat the most powerful army on the face of the earth at that time. And he's provided for their sustenance without fail since the great exodus. That brings us to the story for the Shabbat. According to Numbers 13, Moses instructs the 12 tribes of Israel to choose one leader who will go out as a scout. Your, your version may say spy to scout out the land of Canaan. I like to use the word as in some translations, reconnoiter. I love that word for some reason. And what did they do? They chose Shemua, Shaphat, Caleb, Igal, Hosea, known as Joshua, Palti, Gadiel, Gadi, Amiel, Setur, 
Nabi and Geuel. Now, only 12 of those names, if I hadn't read them to you just now, you would probably most likely only remember two of them, Joshua and Caleb. That's what most people would do. They would not remember any of those other people. But as the story continues, we find out why that's the only two people remember. So these 12 men, they go into the land to check out what kind of provision it offers. What the people were like. What were the fortifications of their cities? Can we overtake them? And anything else that might be helpful for the Israelites to be able to enter and secure control and ownership of the land that God promised them. Then, in Numbers chapter 13, beginning at verse 26, we read, They traveled and returned to Moses, Aaron, and the entire community of Bnei Israel at Kadesh, in the wilderness of Paran. They gave their report to them and the entire assembly. They showed the land's fruit. They gave their account to him and said, We went into the land where you sent us. Indeed, it is a land flowing with milk and honey. This is some of its fruit. Except the people of the land are powerful and the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw the sons of Anak there. Amalek is living in the land of the Negev. The Hittites, Jebusites, and Amorites are living in the mountains. And the Canaanites are living near the sea and along the bank of the Jordan. Then Caleb quieted the people before Moses and said, We should definitely go up and capture the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him said, We can't attack these people, because they're stronger than we. They, so they spread among B'nai Israel a bad report about the land they had explored, saying, The land through which we pass to explore devours its residents. All the people saw there are men of great size. We also saw there the Nephilim, which are the sons of Anak from the Nef- or the sons of Anak are from the Nephilim. We seemed like grasshoppers in our eyes as well as theirs. A side question I have is Did they see you? Because if you were reconnoitering the land, if you were scouting out the land so that you could find out if you could defeat it. Had they seen you, you probably wouldn't have come back. So they assumed that they looked small in the eyes of the Canaanites. But the, 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 the biggest part is we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes. So initially, this reconnaissance team was in agreement that it was indeed a land flowing with milk and honey which is a phrase used to describe a place with abundance and opportunity. They report that Canaan was full of all kinds of abundance. They even brought back evidence. They had the cluster of grapes that was so large it took two men to carry it on a pole. They even agreed about the size of the people and the strength of the cities which is important to know if you're going to go in and conquer. You need to know what the fortification is. You want to know how strong they are to defend against you. And they all agreed. They told of the Anakim that lived there. And you could almost feel the countenance of the people fall as they're listening to this report. Giants 
large fortified cities, their hearts would have literally sank. The ten scouts were intimidated, causing the entire nation to fear and to grumble. And as we see in Numbers 14, they even talked about finding a new leader that can do what? Take them back to Egypt. They spent 400 years there in, in captivity, in slavery, and they want to go back there? What do you think would happen if they showed up back in Egypt? Not only would if the ones that lived through that would end up being in worse condition than they were when they left. But Caleb's response to the murmuring, we just read, we should definitely go up and capture the land, for we can certainly do it. Caleb wasn't afraid. Caleb was standing on the promises of God. He said, this is the land I'm giving to you. And Caleb took that to heart. And he said, we're going to go get it. But just like Caleb, just like Joshua, they saw the same thing as all the other scouts, the other ten. They all saw one vision together of the land. Giants, fortified cities, powerful armies. But his response is completely different from theirs. But is that any different from today? When we face trouble, when we face turmoil, when we face obstacles, oh, we can't do that. I can't make it there. I have to go through that army. Even if God says, you can do it, and I've given it to you, we would still fail today as a whole. There are some that would have the faith of Caleb the faith of Joshua, and stand up to say, we can do this. People can look at that same information, the same pictures, the same videos, which we have today. They didn't have all that back then. But we can have the same facts presented to us, and even with the same situations and the same circumstances, yet come to totally different conclusions. We can't do it. Yes, we can. No, we can't do it. We can do it. See, somebody in business might look at a drop in sales and actually see an opportunity to venture into other markets. While another man will look at that same number in sales and out of despair looks for a different job instead of pressing on and continuing the path he started on. A woman might find herself confronted with a divorce after years of marriage. So she makes a decision to raise her children, dig deeper into her relationship with God, and discover that there is life after divorce. But another one remains stuck in the past, wallowing in bitterness and completely withdrawing from those around her. Same situation, different reaction. That's what we have here. As human beings, we have the capacity to face danger and disappointment in very different ways. Some find a way to move forward into the future with confident determination, while others wander around defeated and remain in the desert for the rest of their lives. As soon as Caleb expressed his confidence that the land could be taken, what did the ten others do? They took exception to that. Remember, they saw that same thing. 
They acknowledged it was flowing with milk and honey. It was a plentiful land. But instead of agreeing with Caleb's insistence that they would prevail, they what? They withdrew. They backed down. They stood by their own bad report. They did what most human beings have been known to do for centuries. They were afraid of change. They exaggerated the facts. All of a sudden, this land that was flowing with milk and honey becomes a one that devours its residents. To make matters worse, they saw themselves as inferior, inadequate, and unable to take the land. Remember, it was the land that God promised them. And then in Numbers 13, 33, they say, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes as well as theirs. They saw themselves defeated before they even began. I don't know how many people here were in the military, but the military does the same thing. They scout out where they're going. They see how strong the opponent is, and they devise a plan to conquer and take over. They don't cower in adversity. They took on what I, I picked this up, so I like it. They took on a grasshopper mentality. But they weren't grasshoppers. We're not grasshoppers. God called them to be giant killers. But they chose to look at themselves as grasshoppers. This could also almost seem humorous if it weren't for the fact that it's something that's been repeated by human beings throughout history. And even today, there are people who have grasshopper mentalities. Great ideas become proposed, but we seem like grasshoppers in our own eyes. And since they seemed like grasshoppers in their own eyes, they acted like grasshoppers. And ultimately, they were perceived as grasshoppers. That's a view of life that is just as pervasive today as it was then, which is sad because... Oftentimes I think of the, the phrase, learn from your mistakes, or you can even learn from others' mistakes. But what happens when it's right in front of you, you're like, you, you get back there in that mentality of a grasshopper. I can't do that. Send somebody else. I can never do that. They accept what is the lesser version of themselves rather than hold fast to the reality of God's power in their lives. Rav Shaul, the Apostle Paul, wrote in 2 Timothy 1.7, For God has not given us the spirit of timidity, but of power and love and self-discipline. If God is with us, who's going to be against us? We can do all things through him who strengthens us. Ralph Waldo Emerson once said, Unless you try to do something beyond what you've already mastered, you will never grow. And that's absolutely true. We have to be willing to go beyond the things that we've already done, go on to greater things, or we fail. Maybe we don't take a job or accept a promotion because we don't think we can handle it. 
Some couples decide not to have children because they believe that the world is an evil place and they don't want to bring kids into a world like that. Wow. The human race would cease to exist if everyone thought that way. And these same couples have plenty of evidence to back them up. They got crime statistics. They see the moral decline of our society. They see overcrowded schools and neighborhoods. They see a government that is in debt to other countries. And the list goes on and on. But grasshoppers will always find facts to justify their decisions. But what about we believe in God? God will be with us. God has promised to guide and protect us. God will empower us to be salt and light for our world. God will not allow us to be overcome by the world. Or we will overcome the world through the power of God's Spirit. What about those statements? Where are the Caleb's today? The Joshua's today. Where are the giant killers? Caleb didn't fall for that grasshopper mentality. He wasn't even intimidated by the size of the inhabitants of Canaan. Remember, they all saw the same thing. If the other ten saw large giants, do you not think Caleb and Joshua saw large giants as well? But it didn't bother him. Why? Because he had a different view and opinion of himself. He knew that there was a spiritual element that would really count in battle for the promised land. And he was ready and willing to match the Spirit of God against the size of the Canaanites. That's what we should do. Put the Spirit of God up against all of our difficulties, all of our problems, all of our hurdles, because He will always win. And of course, He was right. Every victory that Israel won in Canaan was because of God's power. But understand this, you won't hear me, you won't hear Caleb preaching a prosperity gospel. It's not you name it and you claim it, it's not that type of philosophy. I know you can hear about that out there among some ministers, preachers, especially evangelists on TV. But I'm not advocating that you name whatever you want in the name of Yeshua and behold, you have it. I would never do that. I'm realistic. But that's what Moses told the people in Deuteronomy 1.21 when he said, See, Adonai, your God has set the land before you. Go up, take possession as Adonai, God of your fathers, has promised you. Do not be afraid or discouraged. I say that to anybody today that has fear or is discouraged. I say the same thing. God promised you the best. Don't accept less than that. But Caleb wasn't being selfish and he wasn't being egotistical. He was expressing the power of an almighty God. He wasn't telling the Israelites they shouldn't believe in themselves, but that they should believe in God. It's okay to believe in yourself. 
But it's more important to believe in the higher power that's greater than you. Believing in yourself only takes you so far. Believing in God takes you further. And this isn't about the power of positive thinking either. It's the power of believing in the promises of God and then acting on those promises by being obedient to those promises. And that's what will make all the difference in all of our lives. It will make all the difference in your life, my life, and all the difference in the life even of our congregation. See, the tragic result of this grasshopper mentality in Numbers 13 is that the majority won out. The negativity, the grumbling, it caused them to take action. And that action was to do nothing. We can't do it, so let's not do anything. And because of that lack of trust, there was a penalty. And that penalty would be that the Israelites would continue to wander in the desert until that generation, with the bad report, died off. So they went east. They went north. They went west. They went south. All the while, just to the north of them, was the promised land. But they kept traveling away from it. And that was by design, God's design. It was the land God promised to them. But that generation was not allowed to enter the promised land. See, because they believed less in their God. They believed in their own fears, their own inadequacies. They relied too much on the physical sides of the Canaanites. Too much in the fortified cities of the Canaanites. And too little in the God who had already revealed his power to them in Egypt. And at the Red Sea. They believed so much that they were grasshoppers. When instead they should have believed that God had made them potential giant killers. See, I don't know about you. All the things that God did through the plagues, through the Red Sea, up to this point, and then they even got to Sinai, they, they, they heard the voice of God giving the Ten Commandments, and they're still fearful? They don't have the faith that it takes to follow after what he had already said was going to be yours? But again, are we much different? What does it take to deter you from succeeding? At anything. You picked it. Whatever you're trying to do or been trying to do, what has kept you from doing it? Usually it's fear. Fear of the unknown. Fear of failure. You can go through the whole list that I named earlier. And there are some others that you could probably find too. If the story ended right there, though, it would have remained a tragedy. Caleb may have been overruled on that day, but Caleb never gave up on his belief that that was their promised land, promised by God. And 45 years later, when the Israelites had finally taken possession of the land, Caleb came to Joshua, who now was the leader. After Moses died, he was not allowed to enter the promised land, if you recall, because of the whole water thing on the rock but 
he came, and in Joshua 14, beginning of verse 10, he says, So now behold, Adonai has kept me alive, just as he said these 45 years. Since the time that Adonai spoke this word to Moses while Israel was journeying in the wilderness, and now behold, I am 85 years old today. I am still as strong today as I was in the day that Moses sent me. As my strength was then, so is my strength now for war and for going out and coming in. Now, therefore, give me this hill country about which Adonai spoke on that day. For you heard on that day how the Anakim were there as well as great fortified cities. Perhaps Adonai will be with me and I will drive them out just as Adonai has spoken. Caleb still, 45 years later, he says, I'm 85 years old. I'm still ready to fight. I'm still ready to take what is rightfully mine. So he says to Joshua, let me have this mountain. Can you picture this? 85-year-old man saying to his leader, I believed for 45 years, and I still believe it today. Give me that mountain, he says. And so what does Joshua do? Well, i got to convene a meeting of the elders. and it, No, it's yours. He gave him what he asked for. Understand one thing, if nothing else I've said today, that the example from Numbers 13 tells us that we are not intended to be grasshoppers. We are intended to be giant killers. We're intended to move forward in what God has told us, what has God has shown us, and anything he wants us to do, he will help us make it through. We need to enter into our promised land. We need to be obedient. And we need to step in confidence, knowing that with God, all things are possible. If you're living in that fear, in that grasshopper mentality, I say, stop it today. How many are familiar with the, uh, the, the Bob Newhart skit, skit, where he's a psychiatrist? And he says, I have two words for you. Stop it. That's it. Stop it. Stop acting like the grasshopper that is feared to be stepped on. But be the giant killer that we are meant to be through Messiah Yeshua. It's his strength that gives us the strength to persevere, to win, to enter into our promise. Whatever that may be for you. What, what, what he's promised you may be different than what he's promised me. But one thing for certain, if he's called you as his child, you are part of his kingdom. And you have a place in that kingdom. And whatever that place in the kingdom is for you, you will receive it as long as you do not fear and you don't act like a grasshopper. But you conquer your giants. You conquer your fears and come out victorious in Messiah Yeshua. Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we thank you, we bless you, and we magnify your name because you are great. You are greater than all of our possible enemies. You're greater than any hurdles we may come across. Those things are only something that we fear. I pray that you would speak to each and every one today. Help them to overcome any fears they have that they can succeed in doing what you've called them to do. Whatever it is, opening a business or having children if they haven't already. But Lord, I pray that your Ruach HaKodesh, your Holy Spirit, would in. But in, in just completely 
envelop us all. Giving us the power. Giving, showing us that our authority means something. That we're able to do all things through you. Through Messiah Yeshua who gives us the strength to do it. Thank you, Lord, as we continue through this day and into the next week. We pray that you would be our guide. And that you would, re- you would be our encouragement. Even when we start to doubt, lift us up. Remind us whose we are and not who we are, but whose we are. We belong to you and you want the best for us. And I pray that you would show that to each and every one of us that we can step forth in your power, in your authority and be giant killers. In Yeshua's name, amen.